0: Well I want to welcome you again to this gathering of Crossway Church. It is glad to see you all here. Uh, gathered together with us today. If you are visiting with us, especially for the first time, uh, we ask that at the end of the service, when we collect our, uh, our offering, that you don't feel any obligation to put any money in the plates. Uh, we would simply ask that you would fill out one of the visitor connection cards, which you will find from one of the uh, chairs in front of you. And uh, also on the back of that, you will find a prayer card. And so uh, whether member or guest, we encourage you, if you have uh, some uh, prayer request that you would like to share with us, that you fill that out Uh, as well. Put that on the plate or hand it to uh, one of the pastors on the way out. We are uh, especially uh, thankful to have uh, Bob Wood with us today from the state office. He is one of uh, those that uh, serve us uh, at the level of our state convention. He is here up front, and I would encourage you at the end to get to know him, say hi, greet him warmly. Uh, I have uh, benefited from his ministry, and I know this church has as well, and so we are grateful for him to be here, even as we are thankful for everyone to be here. All right, we want to turn our attention now to God's Word. We are in Colossians chapter 3, so we continue to make our way through that book. If you are here and you don't have a Bible, you are more than welcome to borrow one of ours, uh, and in fact have it if you don't even have a Bible. Uh, You'll find it from one of the chairs in front of you, the black book, and you will find our text on page 984, page 984. Colossians chapter 3. For the first time in its history, writes Andreas Kostenberger. For the first time in its history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of the terms marriage and family. He continues on in his book, Marriage and Family Rebuilding the Biblical Foundation, and says this What well, until now has been considered a normal family made up of a father, a mother, and a number of children, has in recent years increasingly begun to be viewed as one among several options which can no longer claim to be the only or even superior form of ordering human relationships. The Judeo-Christian view of marriage and the family with its roots in the Hebrew Scriptures has to a certain extent been replaced with a set of values that prize human rights, self-fulfillment, and pragmatic utility on an individual and societal level. It can be rightly said that marriage and family are institutions under siege in our world today and that with marriage and family, our very civilization is in crisis. Now, I think you just watch the news and it becomes obvious that what he writes is true. that what we have taken for granted for generations as being what marriage and family are all about um, is no longer the assumed reality. Uh, And so that, that... forces us as Christians living in that kind of culture to begin asking ourselves, what do we think of the family? What do we think of the role of husbands and wives and parents and children? How do we think about those things? Not just according to the pressures that are building on us and around us from culture, but rather going back to the very foundations of the Bible itself and asking, what does God say about these things that he himself has created? Things like marriage and family. It is not even enough to think, well, here's how my dad did it. Here's how my grandparents did it. Here's how I see other uh, Christians doing it. Here's what this great book tells me to do. No, that, that's not enough. We have to go back. As, we, as great as those things might be, we have to go back to the Bible and say, what does God say about the family? And, and, and what we find is a very clear word about the family. Paul, as we have been moving through Colossians chapter 3, you will know at this point, he is showing us what maturity in Christ is meant to look like. He is showing us what it means in different realms of life to live as new people in Christ. And here he comes to some of the closing verses of chapter 3 to help us understand what God believes the family is to look like. And so we want to read these verses and we want to seek to understand them and apply them to our lives today that we might reflect in our families God's view of life and reality. So follow along as I read chapter 3, begin at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is the word of God to us this morning. May God bless its reading. Again, as we continue to work through Colossians, uh, we want to think about what it means to live as Christian families. Specifically, as God's people in Christ, we want to think about what it means to have gospel-shaped families families it is not just enough to say well this is this is nice and biblical but specifically now we are not just old testament saints we are new covenant believers and therefore our lives have been formed in shape of the gospel so we've been seeing week after week after week so what does that mean for families and here paul tells us and he says when we have gospel shaped families four things will be evident number one the gospel shaped family will be seen in submissive wives The gospel-shaped family will be seen in submissive wise. Now, let's just be honest. There's nothing like just jumping right into the easy stuff, is there, Uh, in in, in a sermon? Talked with one of the other pastors this morning, and we said, you know, this is why, you know, when you preach through books of the Bible, you, you are not able to wiggle out of the difficult passages. You just, you have to deal with them. So... So here we go. What 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 does this idea of submissiveness mean? We have to be clear. This is because this is not just an assumed thing. This is a this is a message. This is a word that the world does not like. To the world, submission seems dated and misogynistic at best, oppressive and cruel at worst. I have relatives that look down on me pretty hard because I believe this is what the Bible actually teaches but it's not just the world that cringes at this word submission sometimes it's also the church many christians today have a hard time believing this in fact they will say this is not normative for the christian life and they would point to a verse like galatians chapter 3 verse 28 where paul says there is neither jew nor greek there's neither slave nor free there's neither male nor female for you're all one in christ jesus they would point to a verse like that and say see it's not a matter of submission we're all one in christ we're all equal in him But the same man who wrote Galatians wrote Colossians. The Apostle Paul. And what does he say here? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. I I, I don't, I don't see a lot of wiggle room there. That seems a pretty straightforward command. Not even, especially because it, it shows up multiple times in multiple books. It doesn't seem like Paul is just dealing with one specific situation in any one church. He is talking about the normative pattern of behavior for Christian families. So we need to think through this. What does it mean? And I think probably the best way to do that is to start off by saying, what does it not mean? Because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what submission is supposed to be and people get bent out of shape because they don't understand biblically what it means. They have a caricature or they've seen wrong ideas about what submission means. So let's go a bit myth busting for a minute or two here. First of all, submission does not mean, submission does not mean putting a husband in the place of Christ. No man or husband, no matter how godly he is, is in par is on par with the Lord. Biblical submission is not worshiping the, the 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 ground that your that your husband's feet trod on, or even following him in all things. If your husband is sinning and leading you into sin, you should stop and say, "No, I'm not submitting to that. It is wrong." Now understand, sinning does not mean Olive Garden or O'Charlies for dinner. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Okay, and we're talking about something that's clearly uh, sinful. And so, early on in, in our in our marriage when we were uh, had a new baby, we're kind of busy with things. The phone would ring and, and my first response was always, if it's for me, just tell him I'm not home. And, and not long after that, Melinda said, you know, I'm not going to lie for you. If you don't want to talk to him, you get on the phone and say, I don't want to talk to you. Okay, point taken. Not an appropriate time to submit. I was telling my wife to sin and she appropriately said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sin for you. And so we understand submission does not mean putting a husband in the place of Christ. Secondly, submission does not mean a wife should give in to every demand of her husband. Now, now this is different than sin. This is the level of preference as well. Sometimes husband can say, I, I really want to do this. And you just, wives, you don't want to do that. And, and whatever it is, we could probably give some pretty strong examples. We've got kids in the room. We won't go there. My point is this. Just because your husband wants to do something, whatever it is, at any rate, it doesn't mean you have to go along with it. There's a process of thinking and wisdom that needs to take place. Biblical submission is not just about doing whatever he wants. It's not about giving up your preferences. It's not about being weak-willed. And so there's a word here for husbands, but we'll leave that for the next verse. Third, submission does not mean giving up independent thought. It does not mean giving up independent thought. Just because a wife is called to submit doesn't mean she's not smart. doesn't mean she's not intelligent. In fact, it doesn't mean she's not smarter than her husband. Again, I would point you to the example of my own marriage. It is. hey, 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 man. That's not where you're supposed to put the amens. In fact, I will say this, just because a husband is supposed to lead and make decisions, a wise leader always knows to take wisdom from wherever he can get it. And very often that means looking to your wife and saying, honey, what do you think about this situation? At the end of the day, uh, and we're anticipating the next verse at the end of the day, the decision is still on you, husbands. But that doesn't mean you can't seek advice from your wife and get counsel when you need it. Fourth and finally, submission does not mean a wife should give up her efforts to influence and guide her husband. Now again, there's wrong ways to go about doing that and that's not what we're talking about here. But we understand that husbands aren't perfect and wives should make every, influence, uh, every effort to influence them towards godliness. So in 1 Peter, the apostle says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Why? So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What is he saying? He's saying if you have an unbelieving husband, if you still treat him the way a Christian wife is supposed to, even without nagging him about church and the gospel every day, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, he can still be won to the Lord by the witness of your life. He can say, you know what, there must be something to this Christianity thing. Now, that's just unbelieving husbands. How much more toward believing husbands? Those you share a common faith with, how much more can you not be an influence of godliness towards them? More than that, submitting is actually a help to your husband. Submitting to his leadership helps him feel the weight that he needs to carry. When you say, honey, you take the lead, you are putting pressure on him a godly pressure that forces him to realize the full weight of his responsibility for your relationship before his Savior. He is called to be a godly leader, and when you make him take the lead, he has to step up to the plate and lead. Wives, when you submit to your husbands, you help him become a better husband and the kind of man that God would have him to be. Now, I'm sure we could we could probably spend the next 40 minutes just going through misunderstanding, 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 but I think that's probably some of the biggest ones uh, and, and, and the ones that will help send you in the right direction for for, for canceling out what, what submission does not mean. Let's look positively at what it means. In short, it simply means this. It means you let your husband lead. It means willingly letting him take responsibility in the home being its leader. In their excellent book, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, Piper and Grudem say this, Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor And affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It is not an absolute surrender of her will. Rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. Christ is her absolute authority, not the husband. She submits out of reverence for Christ, as Paul said in Ephesians 5.21. And even here, what does Paul say? Submit as is fitting in the Lord. That doesn't mean he is your Lord. That's not not what he's talking about there. He means as one who is in the Lord, as one who is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been baptized into his death and raised in his with his resurrection, you who have put on the new man that is, is your Savior, it is fitting that you submit to your husband. In other words, it is an act of obedience and worship to Christ for you to submit to him. Wives, you're meant to reflect the bride of Christ herself, who the church, who joyfully submits to Christ, the bridegroom. Now, what does this look like in everyday life? Well, practically, tomorrow morning when, when you get up, well, I don't know. If you want to know, maybe we can sit down and we can we can, with your husband and we can talk. But but here's one example by uh, that uh, Mary Cassian gives. She is a Christian author and speaker who is also a wife. And in an interview, she explains what living in a biblical relationship of submission means for her life. She says this, I've been married for 29 years. Just getting going, says my mom, who's been married for 62. What it looks like is a difficult question since submission is not something foreign, not something other to the character of a redeemed woman. Submission is not as much an action as it is an attitude. So it can't be dictated by behavioral prescriptives. Submission boils down to having a spirit of amenability. It means being soft, receptive, responsive, and agreeable. Because of the misconceptions surrounding the definition of submission, I actually prefer to use the term amenability. Amenability comes from the French amené, I think. Micah can correct me later. An amenable woman is leadable as opposed to ungovernable. She's responsive to input and likely to cooperate. Amenability is part of the threefold womanly disposition of 1 Peter 3, which includes gentleness, calmness, and amenability, which works itself out in the married woman's life in submission to her husband. So what it looks like on an ongoing basis, she says, is that I, I am soft, receptive, and agreeable toward my husband. I am responding to his lead. I respect him who God created to be a man and support his efforts to provide godly oversight for our family. I respect the position of responsibility that goes along with being a husband and father. Respect is probably the best word to describe what submission looks like in my marriage. For me, it's one of those things that is far easier to identify by its absence rather than its presence. I know that I am struggling with it when I am critical, impatient, defiant, and snarky toward my husband when I refuse to cooperate and am unresponsive to input, when I rush in and take control, when I fail to provide space to allow my husband the opportunity to be a man and provide godly oversight for our family. In other words, it's not readily apparent to me when I'm not submitting, but it's painfully obvious to when I am submitting, but it's painfully obvious to me when I am not. I sense I am disrespecting, disregarding my husband, taking control and pulling against him rather than for him and with him. I think that I think that's an excellent description and explanation of, of the mindset and the pattern of life that Paul is getting at here. And in fact, not just here, but throughout the pattern of the scriptures, even the New Testament, where it's not based on superiority. Men are not superior than the other. That's what Paul is getting at. Before God, you are equal. You, the husband is not closer to God than the wife. We are all one in Christ. Nevertheless, we've been given different responsibilities. And roles and relationships, even as the divine persons of the Trinity have different roles and responsibilities within their perfect relationship. A God-shaped family will be seen through submissive wives. And secondly, a God-shaped family will be seen in loving husbands, in loving husbands. In verse 19, Paul says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, what does it mean to be harsh with your wife? Well, I think it's specifically connected with what he has just said about submission. Husbands, after what we just saw in verse 18, we need to remind ourselves who the command to be submissive is addressed to. Paul does not say, husbands, make your wives submit to you for it is fitting in the Lord. That's not what he says, is it? He doesn't say, husbands, you make sure your wives submit to you. That's not what he says. He says, wives, this is your responsibility to do that. In other words, uh, men should never be in the midst of an argument in the house and say, don't you know you're just supposed to submit to me? I I wouldn't advise that, okay? Uh, Not just because it's not biblical, but I'm just saying, that's not going to go well for you, husbands, okay? Um, (laughs) Paul doesn't want husbands to hear wives be submissive and continue on in the cultural way of doing things ruling as heads with little concern for the spouses. The verb here that we have translated be harsh actually has as its basic meaning, make bitter. When we understand that, at least for me, a picture begins to form immediately in my mind of a husband who cares very little for the welfare of his life and is only concerned that things happen the way he wants. So he believes when he enters the home that he is in charge and he wants to make that clear to his wife. The wife isn't happy when the husband comes home At the end of the day, nor really cares for him, but is instead bitter at the situation in which she exists. Paul says, Husbands, don't let that happen to your wives. And we can think of all kinds of modern day examples, I think, even just from Hollywood, of marriages that look like that. But I have to say, I'm a bit old school, and when I think about that, the first thought that comes to me is Archie Bunker. Some of you have no idea who that is. Google it later, YouTube, I'm sure it'll come up. But there was one episode that. Uh, someone w- w- was writing about, describing, and I thought, yeah, that's that's it. Uh, this is exactly what Paul was talking about. He, Archie's wife, Edith, was trying to class up the home. And she began with the the food they were eating. She decided, I'm going to make a nicer cuisine. And so Archie comes down for breakfast, and instead of his normal bacon and eggs, there is a souffle in front of him. Well, if you've seen it, you can imagine what, what happens. He completely rejects this new Dish. He turns his nose up, especially because he can't even pronounce it. He doesn't want to eat it. He just says, "I want my bacon and eggs like usual." And so Edith, always trying to please her husband, goes in the kitchen, dumps the entire souffle in the trash, and begins firing up the oven to make his normal, his normal breakfast. Now their daughter Gloria, the whole time, is watching this, and she is incensed, and she just begins uh, going on and on, ranting, submitting to him. That's what she's doing, submitting to her ruler, her lord and master. To which Archie responds, Ain't that a nice way of putting it? That's what Paul's talking about here. Don't do that, he says. Don't be harsh with your wife. Paul makes it clear that's not the kind of husbands Christian men are supposed to be. They are supposed to love their wives. And it's interesting because here we have what people call the household code. Here's what everybody in the household is supposed to live. And this actually runs all the way through the part that we didn't read about slaves and masters, but we'll talk about that next week and explain why we divided it up and everything. But the point is, even in secular Greco-Roman culture, you had similar lists of household codes. But here's the thing. They understood what it meant to to love your spouse, to love one another, but nowhere was it ever commanded. It was nice if the husband loved their wife, but it was never expected and so Paul here is cutting across the culture. And he is saying if you are in Christ, if your life has been changed by the gospel of Christ, then your life must be different from the culture around you. Specifically, you must love your wife. Now what does that mean though? What does it mean to love her? Well, Martin Luther once said the Christian is supposed to love his neighbor. Since his wife, since his wife is his nearest neighbor, she should be his deepest love. I, I like that. It's getting closer to understanding the command, but we still need to know what is the standard, what is the image, what is the expectation of love to which Paul is calling husbands. And while I think if we took about 20 minutes, we can build an implied case for this in Colossians, it's a lot easier just to look over to the parallel text in Ephesians where Paul makes it very clear. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's Christ himself and his love for his bride, the church, that becomes the standard for how husbands are meant to love their wives. So when we think about how we how we treat our wives, how we communicate with them, how we spend time with them, how we love them. Again, it's not enough just to say, well, here's how my dad did it. Here's how my my, my grandpa did it. Here's how my uncle did it. Here's how other men I see are doing it. Here's how this Christian book tells me to do it. No, no. You remind yourself of the gospel. You look to Christ, that is the example. Because everybody else, though, may be really good in trying, are imperfect at best. You look to Jesus and you say, how did he love his bride, the church? That's how I must love my bride, my wife. Therefore, for men, the most important thing to do in order to know how to love your wives is to reflect on the gospel of Christ. It was the supreme act of Christ's love for the church that, that is seen in his willingness to die for her. Jesus left the glories of heaven. He took on human flesh. He identified with sinful humanity and then willingly offered himself as a sacrifice to appease God's wrath, not for his own sin, but for theirs. That's how sinful, rebellious people like you and me are made right with God. Like a dirty, ignorant girl prostituting herself out to other gods, we were in desperate need of a savior and Christ came to be that savior. He found us in our need. He died in our place and he rose back to life that we might be cleansed from the filth of our sin, given a knowledge of God and and be so captivated by the love of the one true God that we leave all our idols behind. That's the gospel. That's how we become Christians. And men, that's the standard, the example by which we are meant to love our wives as well. Most of you will never be able to physically give up your life for your wife. Just the way in which our culture runs it, it's probably not going to happen. But there's a principle there that says, I'm willing to do that, not just to lay down my life permanently, but on a day-to-day basis. I'm willing to put her before myself, sacrifice my desires and my preferences for hers. I'm willing to serve her even as Christ served the church. I want to make sure she is happy and feels loved and respected before I think about what I want and I need. And this is just as much about her spiritual health as it is her physical health. You can go out there and you can work 70 hours a week and you can give her diamond rings and fancy clothes and a nice car and all kinds of things. And guess what? You're still not loving her. You're still not loving her. Because part of of the care and concern and provision is also spiritual and relational. And so you say, I'm not going to work 70 hours. We can't drive the nicest car in the world. But you know what? I'm going to spend time with my wife. I want to make sure that she's being led to the throne of God in Christ, that she is growing spiritually even as I am, that she is feeling nurtured and cared for. I show her love by sacrificing for her, helping her, serving her, putting her first in the marriage, not just with words but with actions. And understand, understand there is a danger here of going to the opposite extreme, of of so-called lovingly serving her to the point that she becomes the leader in the marriage again. The very thing that Paul said shouldn't happen. That we could become a, a, a pushover and a doormat. And we just say, well, whatever my wife wants, I'm going to give her because I love her. That's not what you're called to do, men. That is wrong as well. And again, we look to Christ. He loved more than anybody else. He was never less than a man. And he certainly wasn't a pushover. He was still the leader. Therefore, look to Christ. In the end, being a husband is about having a Christ-like leadership. It's not about ruling. It's not about thinking of me first and then everybody else. It's not about being superior. It's not about barking out commands or giving orders or making every single decision all the time. It's about responsibility and service. It's about leading like Christ, a leader whose motive was driven by sacrificial, even sanctifying love. That's what a gospel-formed husband looks like. And frankly, if you're successful at that, you will never have to worry about a submissive wife. Never. And they have to pray and say, oh, man, she's such a bother. She's she's always trying to take the lead. No, no, no. You love her like this, and she will follow you anywhere, men. Anywhere. Therefore, whether it's now or whether it's you single guys that are looking for marriage one day, let's just stop playing games. Stop playing the fool, and as Paul says, start playing the man. Let's end juvenile antics and loveless pretension and by God's grace start imitating Christ in our marriages. Let's pray for and work hard at being godly men who know how to lead and love their wives. Then the gospel will be seen in our marriages and God will be glorified in our families. As we consider these two verses together, Luther probably has the best word on things as he often does. He says this, Let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. I think that's getting at what's going on here. Now, frankly, there's so much more I could say, but if we're ever going to finish Colossians by Christmas, i got to keep moving. So how about we just say this? Husbands and wives, you come on Wednesday, and we will finish unpacking this and discussing it and applying it, and then we'll pray for one another that we can do this in a way that honors God. Third, gospel-shaped family will be seen in obedient children. Will be seen in obedient children. Okay, young people, teens and kids, if you're asleep... It's time to wake up. If you've been passing love notes, it's time to start taking sermon notes. This part is for you. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Now, I have to say again, all of these things, one verse, straightforward, how in the world do you get out of it? Well, you can't. As a child, you're commanded to obey your parents. But frankly, that's the problem, isn't it? It's not just an innate response as a sinner who wants to rebel against authority. All of culture celebrates rebellion. On bumper stickers and t-shirts and ads, you see this, this command to question authority. Nobody wants someone else to tell them what to do or how to live. But God says the opposite, doesn't it? God says, don't question authority. Obey authority. Uh, adults, we don't like authority either, do we? Uh, you know, we complain about government all the time. Did you ever, think, you ever think about this? you ever hear Paul complain about government? This is a man who lived under the Roman Empire. You didn't just get Red Miranda rights and thrown in the tank for a while, waiting a adjournment. No, you were just crucified. And never once he says, boy, I just wish God would bring revival to the government. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not a bad thing to be thinking of. But what did he say? They're an authority. Submit only insofar as they do not lead you to live contrary to what God has told you to live. And I have to think, looking at my own life, if we didn't complain and buck against authority so much in our lives, I wonder if our kids would not rebel and buck against our authority in their lives just a thought just a thought that's a freebie god 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 has told children obey your parents why because it is pleasing to him throughout the bible we see not obeying parents is seen as a serious sin think of just two examples from paul's other letters first romans chapter one paul is describing the fall of humanity into sin and the visible effects of that sin on our lives listen to what he says Since wicked people did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. You don't just commit evil, you invent evil, new ways of doing evil. Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Frankly, because of our sensibilities, that is shocking. You've got people that are said to hate God, who invent evil, who do evil, who not only see evil out there, engage it themselves, but they approve of others doing it. And right in the middle, Paul lists disobedient to parents. Young people, God takes this seriously. He takes obedience to parents seriously. One more time, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is telling Timothy, you're going to minister in a day and age when everything falls apart. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Again, right in the middle, disobedient to God. Why is that sin so bad? Kids, young people, why do you think disobedient to your parents is so bad? things because Paul sees what we can't see today. Namely this, if you are disobedient to your parents, you are just one short step away from disobeying God. If you can't honor and respect your parents whom you have seen, there's very little doubt you're going to love and honor and respect God whom you have not seen. Therefore, the person who rebels against parents is in grave spiritual danger. At the same time, we understand parents having obedient children is not about looking good in public. It's not about being able to eat a quiet dinner. It's not about not being embarrassed when you take four of them to the movie theaters and they're running around and popcorns flying everywhere and you're just thinking, Oh, I'm so mortified. No, no, that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. Raising obedient children is about going after their hearts so that when you begin to see joyful obedience to you, you will know they're on a path to joyful obedience to God. It's not about external moralism. It's about their spiritual life before God. That's why this is so serious. It's so serious that parents understand this right, and kids, it's so important that you understand what it means and why it's important to obey your parents. If you are here as a child, or a teenager and you claim to be a Christian and you are disobedient to your parents you are you are by your very act of disobedience denying your faith in Christ. Understand that. You say, "Oh, I'm a Christian." And you smart off to your parents, you disobey them, you disrespect them, that action says I'm not a Christian. Doesn't matter what you've said or what you've done or if you've been baptized, the life must match the confession of faith. That's for adults, but that's especially for you as kids even. Because to say, Christ is Lord, you must also say, for a time of my life, my parents are Lord. And I will submit to them and their leadership. Ultimately, young people, you've got a choice to make. You can either follow the world, disobey your parents as a slap in God's face, and continue on a path of life that will ultimately cause you to end up in sin up to your eyeballs in this life and hell in the next. Or you have another choice. You can call out to God for help. You can call out to God and ask Him to forgive you in Christ. You can ask Him to give you His Spirit to empower you, to obey your parents, to resist the foolish advice of your friends, and live in a way that is pleasing to God. One road is broad that many take and it leads to destruction. The, air, the other is narrow and less traveled. It is difficult, but it always leads to life with God. It doesn't matter how bad your rebellion is. God has stated he is ready to forgive you. Just think of the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. You have a man who rebels against his father, who essentially says, I wish you were dead, and he goes off and he squanders the fortune that he's been given. And he thinks... How would my father ever take me back? Maybe I can just be a slave in his house because they eat a lot better than I'm eating right now the slop bucket. And yet there's the father waiting to put back on the royal robe and the ring of sonship and so much more is your heavenly father standing ready to fling around you the robe of Christ's righteousness to display to everyone through your baptism that you've been adopted as his child and to forgive you from all of your sins? It doesn't matter how bad you have been. God always holds the door out and says, repent, turn away, and I will gladly forgive you because Christ has died for you. And so both teenagers and little kids, here in three words is what it means to obey your parents. Okay? You ready? You ready for them? You are to obey them immediately, completely, and joyfully. So when your parents say, I want you to go clean your room, you don't say or think, eh, when I'm done playing. You do it immediately. You get up and you go do it. You say, yes, mommy. Yes, daddy. Yes, mom. Yes, dad. You got it, pops. Whatever you say. But you go and you do it immediately. Then you do it completely. They say, clean your room. You don't do half the room and say, I'm tired of this. I'm done. And you walk away. No, you finish the job, whatever it is, because you love your parents and you want to obey them. And then third, you do it joyfully. There is a way to obey that is grumbly, that is bad attitude. I don't want to do this and you're slamming toys when you clean it up. Or laptops or whatever it is. Please don't slap your laptops. Whatever teenagers you got. Don't do that. Don't just do the job and hate it. Do it joyfully. Knowing God has entrusted you to your parents. They are responsible for you. And they love you. And parents When your kids are disobedient, when they're not doing this, we're going to talk in just a second. The last point is for you. But here, remember the the story of the prodigal. When they sin, don't hold them off when they try and repent, when they come to you and want forgiveness. Don't hold them off. Don't say, I'm still mad. I I don't want to forgive you yet. You be ready to forgive like your heavenly father has forgiven you. Here's the last thing, quickly. The last thing we'll see in gospel-shaped families is we will see encouraging parents. Encouraging parents. Children are supposed to obey, but notice how Paul ends this section. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become encouraged. Now, each of these, each of these, we've only been given one command, basically, right? Maybe two, or a rationale, but one command for wives, one command for husbands, one command for children, one command here for uh, fathers, but I think inclusive of parents as well, which we'll talk about in a second. Surely there has got to be more about biblical wifery, if that's even a word, I don't think it is, but you understand what I'm saying? Being a, being a godly wife, a godly husband, a godly kid, but Paul nears it, he just gives one command. Why does he do that? I think it's because he points his finger on the most common problem, the most common temptation. When you go back and you look at Genesis chapters 1 through 3, what you see is the design of creation is that the, the husband, the man, is meant to be the leader and the provider and the protector for his Wife. He is meant to care over God's creation and his wife is meant to come alongside him and help him in that even as he takes care of her. But now because of Swin Sin everything becomes twisted. Now the wife desires to be the leader. She wants to be in control of the husband. And the husband doesn't want to lead. He doesn't want the responsibility. He wants to hand it back to God and say, I I don't want to do it. And yet he resents the wife trying to take the responsibility and the leadership. So instead of leading, he becomes a boss and a bully like Archie Bunker or something worse. What does Paul say to them? Exactly what they need to hear. Wives, submit. Husbands, love. It's right at that that pressure point of default temptation. For children, they're meant to grow up under the care and authority of their parents. But what do they do? They follow the example of their parents all too well. And just as their parents rebelled against God, they rebel against their parents. And so what does God say to them? Children, obey your parents. And now he comes to parents. Parents. First of all, he says fathers intentionally. Uh, he, he, he very intentionally uses the word for father, not just parents. There's two different words there. Because I think he, he's, in, he's intending for us to understand, dads, you got to take the lead here. Just like you take the lead in the family generally. So here with kids, raising kids, teaching them, disciplining them, this is the, the responsibility falls to you. doesn't mean you have to do everything. But if you're going to sit down for family devotions and... Maybe your wife is just the better teacher, so, so you let her do that. Guess what? You better be picking out the passage. You better be picking out the devotional book. You better be setting, setting the stage by opening in prayer or whatever it is. You take the lead. Likewise, when it comes to disciplining your kids, it shouldn't be mama they fear. It should be papa. You don't cross daddy. That's what parents should know. But you know what else they should know? That you love them more than you are ready to discipline them and and have no, no patience for disobedience. They should also know that you love them with an undying, unending love. That you're just as quick to spank them on the rear as you are to pick them up in your arms and love them and hug them and kiss them. That's what they should know about fathers. Parents, what are you supposed to do? What is the common temptation? The common temptation is this, to grow slack in our care of our kids, specifically our discipline of them. I don't mean slack and not doing it. Although that is a problem too, particularly in this culture. We don't want to discipline our kids. We want them to be our friends. But I think if you look across the sweep of human history, the bigger problem is this. We forget why we're parents. We forget what the goal of disciplining our kids is, is meant to be. Raising kids becomes a chore and the result is parents stop working hard at it. They grow impatient. They're rough and mean with their kids, they're short with them, and therefore they make it harder for them to obey. They provoke them to anger. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace and so many other hymns, he lived with that kind of a father. His mother was a godly woman who sought to teach him Christianity properly, but she died when John was seven. And his seafaring father, when he returned home, he quickly married again, but had not Christ in his life, and therefore had little to offer young John. He taught him a basic morality but had very little to do with shaping his life for any good. Newton writes like about this situation. He says, Though my father left me much to run the street left me much to run about the streets, in other words, he, he supposedly gave him freedom and just let him run around wherever he wanted, yet under his eye he kept me at a great distance. I am persuaded he loved me, but he seemed not willing that I should know it. I was with him in a state of fear and bondage. His sternness, together with the severity of my schoolmaster, broke and overawed my spirit and almost made me adult. A stupid blockhead, that's what he means. So that part of the two years I was at school, instead of making a progress, I nearly forgot all the good that my mother had taught me. What had she taught him? She taught him the Bible. She taught him catechism questions. She taught him the Lord's Prayer. She taught him how to pray. She taught him what the cross was about. And he says, because of the hardness of my father and the teacher I had at school, I nearly forgot every single thing my mother tried to teach me. He says, I was blasphemous in speech and wayward in behavior. Now, here's just one example of how parents can discourage their children to disobedience. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't discourage them, encourage them. Don't provoke them to unnecessary anger. Encourage them toward godliness. In his commentary on this passage, Pastor John MacArthur has a very lengthy treatment on the various ways that parents can discourage and provoke their children. Let me just give you the bullet point list. Write these down in your sermon notes in the margin and parents think about, am I doing this with my kids? Parents can discourage their children by overprotection, by overprotection, by showing favoritism. Among other kids, by depreciating their worth, by never telling them, you know, can can you imagine what it's like for a kid to always hear, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and you never tell them, good job? Depreciating their worth. You can discourage them by setting unrealistic goals for them, by failing to show affection, by not providing for their needs by going the opposite direction, by having a lack of any standards. Just, well, I want my kids to grow up and learn, learn responsible maturity. That's when they're older, not when they're younger. They grow into that. When they are younger, they need to learn obedience and have a schedule and have standards and expectations for obedience. Otherwise, you are doing them no favors. No favors at all. You can provoke them and discourage them by unhelpful criticism, by neglect, and by excessive discipline. Parents, the goal is, is not just to raise well-behaved kids that make you proud when they walk across the platform at high school graduation or college graduation or get a nice job or, or, or marry a pretty girl. No, the goal of parenting is to raise disciples of Jesus Christ. That is our goal. We do not want to discourage that by provoking them to anger and disobedience. We want to discipline them and teach them with love, encouraging their growth. Therefore, what does that mean with us? But we ourselves need to remember how the gospel came to us and how it changed us. We need to remember that we're not perfect, that we get both the disciplining and the loving hand of our Heavenly Father as His children. Therefore, that same gospel truth of our adoption by God and His care of us, that needs to be reflected in our care and love for our children. Submissive wives, loving husbands, obedient children, and encouraging parents. This is the evidence of a gospel-shaped family. And I pray that it would be true of us. Father, we are thankful for your word. God, even when it comes in and it it drills down deep, and it smashes through our long-held beliefs, it smashes through our cherished idols. God, when it steps on our toes and makes us Irritable because we're moved beyond what we like and what is comfortable for us. We're moved to realize we are imperfect people in need of your grace. God, help us to be thankful for that because that is what we need. We don't need a, a condescending pat on the head that, every, that you're okay and you're fine. We need the discipline of a loving father, of you to correct us and to encourage us toward godliness, to loving your son more than we love our sin. And father, I pray with a text like this that is sometimes difficult for us to hear and to think about, confront it with our own sin. God, help us to respond appropriately. Help us to respond with repentance and faith, looking to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who made an end of all our sin. God, help us to be willing servants of you, even when it's not easy, knowing that you will give us the grace that we need in order to persevere and even grow into godliness. God, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.